Hello, and welcome to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Let's unpack the relationships that we encounter in our daily lives and learn about what makes them tick. And now your host for Red Rock Relationships, Dr. James B. Stein. Well, all right, we are back and in action for another hearty season of Hashtag Triple R, and I am your host, and I am thrilled to be back in here for another riveting semester where we're going to talk all about relationships and communication and kind of what makes things work. And to help me do that in this season opener, I have a guest from way back in season one, uh, Dr. Corey Floyd. Corey, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me, James. It's my pleasure. So for those of you who may not have watched that first season or just kind of, you know, it's been a while. So just as a, a brief reminder, Dr. Floyd's area of expertise is in things like affection. He's the author of Affection Exchange Theory. And last time we spoke a lot of time talking about how affection works, what it looks like, what it can look like, and, uh, you know, how it's changing, especially in the era of anti-toxic masculinity and in the era of the pandemic. So um, if you want to start maybe by going back in time and watching that episode it might help inform this one because we're going to get a little bit more specific this time so with that said Corey, are you ready to go i am ready all right so like i just said last time we spent a lot of time talking about aet the tenets of the theory kind of how it works and the importance of affection in general but this time i want to talk specifically about one form of affectionate communication i want to talk about touch so I think that the first thing that we ought to do is define touch and like obviously we understand what it means to touch another person but what we might not be as familiar with are the various forms of touch or the instrumentation of touch in human interaction so what are some of these types of touch and are some of them um, better at conveying uh, feelings of affection than others Sure. Well, you know, touch is one of those things that we do that has a variety of forms and a variety of functions. So very often we touch people when we're providing some kind of care to them. This would be like, say, helping a child get dressed or we provide touch when we're trying to exercise control over, over other people, like when we're leading somebody in a particular direction. Um, touch can certainly be aggressive. Uh, that would be the kind of touch that's meant to cause harm or pain. A lot of our touch is ritualistic, so uh, it doesn't have any particular social meaning. This would be just like shaking somebody's hand or uh, touching in the form of uh, just a social ritual like that. But a lot of touch, of course, is, is affectionate, and that is the type of touch that's meant to show care, to meant to show uh, how much we love and care about somebody. And the kind of touch that is best for that purpose, that's best for showing affection, it really depends on the preferences of the people involved. But in general, it's usually touch that is intimate, uh, that is in somebody else's personal space, the kind of touch that we don't tend to share with just anybody in our lives. Yeah, and I think also, you know, and th this is something I talk about with my students, like. Uh, a lot of it revolves around the the recipient of touch and it, it, i'm talking of course about things like consent and you know uh the, the social norms that guide that sort of touch and so like one person's act of this is meant to be affectionate touch might not necessarily be perceived in that way by the person receiving that touch um can you maybe just talk a moment about that sort of uh opportunity for miscommunication 
Well, sure. You know, touch is a very, it can be a very intimate act. And uh, so when we misconstrue what somebody else is desiring or what somebody else might be comfortable with at that time, uh, that can be really problematic. And, and particularly these days, as people are emerging from the pandemic, we see a lot of this kind of negotiation of touch going on. So as people approach each other, they may ask, are we shaking hands? Are we hugging? What's the protocol for us right now? Uh, and I think in general, it's a good thing to check in with somebody else if we don't know them well enough to know what they're going to be comfortable uh, doing with us when we interact. Mm, that's such a good point. You know, you, you reminded me during, uh, I, I'm teaching nonverbal comm this semester, and we were talking about culture and some of the, you know, varying interactions that occur in, in cross-cultural interactions. And one of my international students raised her hand and talked about how a lot of people in European countries don't know how to greet people anymore because traditionally uh, they will uh, feign uh, a kiss on the cheek or actually kiss each other on the cheek or lips. And that sort of thing, especially if you're wearing a mask, is no longer viable. So it's interesting that you brought that up because that struggle seems so specific and unique. It's requiring a lot of negotiation that many of us are not used to having to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it's contributing as, again, as we're emerging from this pandemic period, it's requiring a lot of negotiation that feels very awkward to a lot of us. And it makes it um, just a little more difficult to reestablish those connections with other people. It's important that we do that. It's important that we reestablish them and, and figure out what our boundaries are and what our new norms are going to be, uh, particularly for something as intimate as touch. But it also seems very unfamiliar to a lot of us right now. Yeah, absolutely. And that's important, of course, because as we know, there's, uh, you know, a bounty of research that illustrates just how important receiving and giving touch is for human development at uh, across a variety of life stages. So that kind of leads into the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is, uh, can you share with us maybe some of the ways or some of the specific things that humans do um, when they touch each other? Like what, what purpose can touch serve across human interaction? Well, you know, it serves a lot of the purposes that I mentioned before. It can be used to provide care. It can be used to control other people, to show affection, to show aggression. Um, but in those kinds of acts of touch, uh, what we're often not cognizant of is what that touch is doing for the other person. Um, and so to sort of get to your question about uh, the benefits or the things that that touch does for us, uh, we see those kinds of benefits most clearly with children because we know from years and years of research that uh, that frequent touch, uh, cuddling, holding uh, children uh, when they're young in particular is really essential for their development, both physically and cognitively. So, uh, so children who receive that kind of touch, who are held, who are cuddled, um, by, uh, by their caregivers, by adults in their lives, they will develop, uh, faster. They will develop on a more normal trajectory. Uh, their immune capacities will develop more fully. So they'll have the ability to, uh, ward off illness or, uh, recover from injury and their cognitive capacities develop faster by comparison to, uh, children who don't receive a lot of that kind of touch, who we see both physical developmental delays and also cognitive delays uh, as they age. 
Yeah, that's such an interesting set of findings because I think it's an area of investigation that people neglected for a long period of time. And now, you know, you look back on all the research and you say, oh my God, how did we not pay attention to all of this? It's such an important element um, of human development. And I, I think you make a really good point about the uh you know the meaning assigned to that touch the instrumentation of that touch who's touching you do you want to be touched by them um you know the negotiation that you have here but what's also interesting is that there's some evidence that indicates that that co that context matters but also the act of touching on its own matters and i imagine you know where i'm going yeah. with this i just can't help but talk about our shared research the cold presser experiment that we did uh long and short of it is sometimes it if it's as long as it's someone you know the simple act of touching can actually help with things like pain tolerance and and the reduction of discomfort um why is that so important like how how does that come to be in your estimation you know it, it's been a really interesting question for a lot of years what um what accounts for the benefits of one person touching another when it might come to something like pain reduction or stress reduction or something like that, how much of that benefit is resident in the touch itself and how much of that benefit depends on the nature of the relationship that you have with the person who is touching you. So uh, I often say that despite all the benefits of affectionate touch, that's not really a, a prescription to go out and start hugging people on the street. Uh, that's not necessarily stress reducing. In fact, that can be stress inducing mm -hmm. uh, for those people. So we know that part of it depends on the nature of the relationship that we have with the person. And it's it makes sense to us to predict that we might benefit even more when we receive touch from people that we know well, from people that we trust or have a close emotional bond with. But making that argument doesn't negate the possibility that we also benefit at least a little bit by receiving touch even from strangers when we were, when we are in situations that call for that. So I might think about being in a hospital, for example, and I'm nervous about a procedure that I'm going to have and I receive um, uh, uh, just a comforting touch, let's say, from a, a healthcare provider. I may not know that person. I may not have an emotional bond with them, and yet I may still benefit from that. Massage mm -hmm. would be another example of that. I don't have to know the massage therapist personally in order to benefit from that touch. So we know that it's not an either or kind of situation, that sometimes the relationship can magnify the benefits that touch has for us. But that doesn't mean that we're better off not having touch writ large, mm. as opposed to sometimes having it from people that we don't know as well. We may benefit still from that touch, even from strangers. Uh, we just may benefit more when there's an emotional bond beyond that. I think that's also especially true for individuals uh, who are neurodivergent and struggle with things like touch and communication. So I, I, I appreciate that point. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something about the significance of emotional bonds, and this is going to take us, I know that the subject is human touch, but this is going to just take us away from that for a brief moment. My question is, what role do non-humans play in solving what we referred to way back in season one as skin hunger, right? That 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 
need that people have for touch that's not getting met. What about the role of something like an emotional support dog or cat or iguana or you know what have you? Can we get similar needs met from any warm body or if it's an iguana, a, a cold body? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, many people probably have heard the idea that when you pet a dog, your blood pressure goes down. Mm. And, and, it, and it turns out that that's true. In fact, it also lowers the dog's blood pressure. So there's a shared benefit there. But the point that that observation makes is that touch from almost anyone or anything can be beneficial. There's benefit certainly to touch in our human relationships, but like many of us have discovered during this pandemic, during this time of lockdown, when our loved ones are not as available to us, that when we share touch with animals, and I think particularly with mammals, with dogs, with cats, with horses, uh, that can be very beneficial for things like stress management, for reducing our blood pressure, for reducing our or um, stress hormones. A lot of us find when we're feeling distressed or when we're feeling anxious, you know, curling up with a cat or playing with a dog or just being with our our horses and 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 stroking their manes or just feeling them around us, having tactile contact with them that way um, is very stress alleviating. It's very comforting for us. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's a perfect substitute for human touch. Uh, th those those human relationships might still be more beneficial for us in terms of things like health maintenance and immune competence and and the ability of our bodies to regulate stress. But, you know, it's not a coincidence, I think, that especially dogs and horses are very often used in therapeutic settings for people and often for people who are neurodiverse, like you mentioned before, mm -hmm. who may find human contact more difficult to navigate. Yeah, very good point. You know what this makes me think of? This makes me think of like the old, old, old um, Harlow studies that used mm -hmm. the the tiny little monkeys and the terry cloth experiments uh, just real quick for those of you who are unfamiliar there was this experiment done involving teeny tiny monkeys and basically they set up among other trials they set up these two quote mother figures and one of them was a pseudo monkey uh, wrapped in terry cloth and the other one was like made out of steel wire but the one with steel wire had milk so the monkey could get nourishment from the steel wire and yet the monkeys chose every time to cling to the terry cloth monkey and only when they were so hungry that they couldn't take it anymore would they deviate and and get food from the other monkey and then immediately return back to the terry cloth monkey and you know we are more evolved than certain species of monkeys but i i think it speaks to the interspecies connection there and how a variety of different species require and and lust for touch in in very big and noticeable ways yeah you know harlow was really the pioneer who taught us about the importance of touch and attachment uh, and things that, you know, ideas that today we sort of take for granted. Well, of course we need touch. Of course we need human bonding and we need to belong and we need to have attachment figures in our lives. But we haven't had that knowledge with us forever. Um, I think that sort of along the way, we learned that when infants didn't receive enough touch, when they weren't held, when they weren't cuddled, 
during development, we started noticing that they had a number of problems, not just through childhood, but even into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And it was really Harlow's research that helped us to understand how fundamental a need this is in our experience. He was using uh, macaw monkeys. Uh, they're not human, but, um, but you know, we have a lot of shared DNA uh, with monkeys, with great apes. Uh, we're not that divergent uh, in, a, in an evolutionary sense. So what is true for many other species, uh, it's reasonable to assume is also true for humans. And we certainly know uh, at this point, how important that attachment, that safety and comfort that we feel through human touch is to us, not just when we're very, very young, but throughout our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so th this is going to lead me to really the final thing that I wanted to discuss today. And uh, I think it's important to note because we've been talking about how, you know, largely humans require and want touch, but that we've been, you know, caveating that by saying, you know, not all touch is created equal. It depends on the context and the person, the relationship, the individual characteristics of the person receiving the touch. And so this, of course, uh, leads to a natural line of questioning, which is how, like, what can we do to ensure that our loved ones or the people in our lives are receiving the the appropriate amount of touch, how do we balance our skin hunger, which is becoming an increasingly large problem, especially for Americans, how do we balance that skin hunger with the desire to respect the boundaries and the space of other people who might not want touch all the time or might not want touch in that moment? It's such an important question. And I think the first step is really knowing what our needs are and knowing what the needs are of our loved ones. You know, I often talk about touch, even though it's a human need, uh, not everybody needs the same amount of touch to feel uh, safe, to feel fulfilled in the same way that not everybody needs the same amount of sleep mm. or the same amount of food, but nobody needs none. Mm -hmm. So we all have a need for touch, but this is something that people both individually and, and, and as groups, as societies, as cultures, that we vary one from another on. So, uh, so that each of us has a certain amount of touch and a certain amount of affection that's optimal for us. And so I think a very important first step is investigating that, is, is recognizing that my loved ones may not have the same level of need that I do. Their needs may be higher, their needs may be lower, but knowing that, investigating that is really key um, because, you know, we want to respect that. It's really important that um, when people are around us that we're not forcing our affection on them. Uh, as much as that feel, may feel natural to us to do, as much as it may feel that uh, I just, I really need this affection from you. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to sort of um, enforce my own need, my enforce my own level. Uh, it's so much more important to share a level of affection and a form of affection that both people are comfortable with. Yes. If we do that, then that behavior can be really stress alleviating. It can be pain alleviating, and it can be a very bonding experience uh, emotionally in terms of the attachment with the people involved. But if we don't do that, that kind of touch can be very stress-inducing. Many of us have probably had that experience of getting a hug or getting a kiss or just an arm around the shoulder from somebody that we didn't welcome that behavior from, mm. uh, either because it's a person that 
uh, we're not used to interacting that way with or because we just don't have a comfort level with that kind of behavior or we may be in a situation that doesn't call for it. Yeah. And so when we receive that kind of behavior, you know, it can really feel like somebody is violating our boundaries. Yes. Um, and uh, and so I think that most important uh, and again, we've, we're sort of seeing this in this microcosm of of emerging from the pandemic and all this negotiation that happens uh, with people. The answer to the question is really being cognizant of the fact that people vary sometimes substantially in the level of touch and in the forms of touch that they're comfortable with or the level of touch that they feel they need to be at their optimum mm. uh, in their life. And knowing that about the loved ones who are around us uh, and respecting that, uh, I think is just absolutely key. Yeah, you know what this makes me think of? It makes me think of PDA, like public displays <laughs> of affection, what we might call tie sure. signs. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think of an anecdote of a friend of mine who is very, uh, uh, very touchy, very lovey with, with both her partner and her platonic friends. But the minute you put that particular person in a public setting, no more touch, no, very, mm. no touchy, very like, I, and you know, I have asked this person, I said like, you know, tell me about like the difference that you experience. And it's just, you know, I don't want other people watching me receive affection or touch in that way. And I've watched her <laughs> yell at her significant other uh, as he attempts to, um, you know, hold, not hold her hand, but you know, like kiss in public or hug in public even sometimes. Uh, I've, I've watched this person snap uh, almost unintentionally, but, but all the same. It's very interesting to see the ways in which context can dictate the appropriateness of touch at the individual and at the societal level. It absolutely can. And there are a number of aspects of context that make a difference. Mm -hmm. So the public versus private nature of it is certainly one of those. Uh, and I think people like your friend have almost a reflex action when they feel like they're receiving a behavior that they don't welcome in that public context that they would have no problem with if we were in private. Mm -hmm. uh, another aspect of the context that often matters with respect to affection we know from our research is how emotionally charged the context is. So when I very first started studying affection, one of the things that I just picked up on anecdotally is that when people were in emotionally charged situations where emotions were running high, so this would include things like a wedding or a graduation or a funeral, I noticed that there was much more latitude in the ways that people interacted, especially with affection. So you might hug someone at a funeral or at a graduation who you wouldn't normally hug uh, in most situations, but it's the emotional intensity of that context that really expands our uh, vocabulary, if you will, for the way that we interact with other people. We're a lot more lenient when it comes to the boundaries that we might normally expect from others in a situation like that. Uh, and certainly the, the level of formality in the situation can make a difference. So what's acceptable or normative at a party may not be acceptable or normative when you're at church or when you have to go to court uh, or something like that. So we, I think as, as human beings, as social beings are attuned to really multiple aspects, multiple flavors, if you will, 
of the environments that we find ourselves in. And just like with your friend, that can make a huge difference in the repertoire of behaviors that we're comfortable with or that we expect from other people around us. Yeah, man, yeah. And and it strikes me that one thing that matters a lot here is our own self-concept and our own sense of self. And the reason that I bring that up is because I think it's important, but also because it's what we're going to be talking about in episode two of this season. We're gonna be talking a lot about identity. Specifically, we're gonna spend some time talking about um, what you might consider divergent identities. We're gonna talk a lot about uh, folks who don't fit into the quote unquote nuclear design of, of you know the Western culture. And you know, I think that from a touch perspective, there's a lot to consider there in terms of who we're allowed to touch and, and, mm -hmm. and who we're not allowed to touch. Absolutely. You know, things like power differences and cultural differences, age differences, gender, all of those things come into play as aspects of our identity that feed into the way that we normally uh, interact with others in our society. And, and so it's, you know, it's almost amazing that we are ever able to touch anybody at all because it, it can feel so complex mm. in a moment like that. And so many aspects of identity are relevant. Yeah. Well, on that note, we're going to get into all of that next week, but for now, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure, James. I really appreciate it. Okay, everyone. We'll see you next time for a discussion of identity. And uh, I think it's going to be a good one. So stick around for that. Take care. You've been listening to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. If you'd like to be on the show or have questions for us, please send us an email to redrockrelationships at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just search Red Rock Relationships. Thank you again. And remember, it all begins with good communication. This has been a production from a podcast studio.